This week on Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, we start with a movie, a book, an album, and a TV show to recommend to you. Then we talk about the corruption of self-care, and we finish by looking at what's happening with The Voice campaign. This is Cool Story. I'm Brie Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabour. All right, Bridie, what have you been up to this week? So I got the shoppies so bad. What is the shoppies? <laughs> what are you talking about? The shoppies is a co- is a term that I first heard from a friend of mine, Ali, and it spoke to me so much. And I think that it is something that all of us experience. You know, when you just really, really got to go spend some money. Oh yeah, you got to okay. spend some yeah, money when you got to blow some cash. Yeah, you yeah, got to blow right. some cash. It can be thirty dollars. It can be two hundred dollars, and you usually triggered in my case by looking in my wardrobe and hating every single thing. And I don't clothes shop that regularly. No, me either. So I can go months and months and months without buying any clothes. And then all of a sudden I hate everything in my wardrobe or sometimes I hate all of my makeup and I'm like, this money is burning a hole in my pocket. I've, I've got to go blow some cash. I've got to go max out my credit card that I spend months paying off. So I got the shoppies and had the greatest day out at my favourite Westfield in Sydney, which is down in the Shire. Sorry, I'm still laughing about getting the shoppies. Do you know what I mean now, though? Uh, yeah, but it just, uh, yeah, it makes it sound like a <laughs> like a c- condition. It is. I mean, I need to get it out. <laughs> you need to purge the hard-earned money from your bank account. Yes, so I went yeah, after months of austerity in our household budget, and many people, obviously a lot of people can relate, after months of austerity and being so good at paying off my credit card, oh, my God. So what did you get? I got an, how do you say it, age, age oh yeah, dress, age. which is age. so beautiful. Mm. And I got swimmers from Kmart, which I swear is the best place for me to buy swimmers. You know how it can be hard to find stuff that fits well and looks good and you feel comfortable in. And I try on swimmers that are like $500. I've tried so many different brands. I'm always looking. And consistently, well, by consistently, I mean last year and this year, I went into Kmart and found really flattering swimwear in really great colours. Wow. Yeah, so tip for you. So I got my swimmers from Kmart and I went and got my incredibly expensive dress, age dress from David Jones. And You're um, a high-low gal. <laughs> I am a high-low gal. And also the beautiful thing about the shoppies for me now. <laughs> still Shoppies. I'm not over that. (laughs) Sorry. Is that I can get the shoppies for myself, but I can also get the shoppies for my kids and my niece. So I've got a beautiful handmade Italian dress for my niece. (laughs) (laughs) And um, some incredibly weird T-shirts for the boys, which they loved. And my boys have very, they like, they love an aesthetic. They've got very specific aesthetics and taste and they love to put an outfit together so they love it when I get the shoppies on their behalf I do love that about like my friend the friends of mine who have kids who put pictures of their kids on their like Instagram stories when the children are at an age where they start dressing themselves I'm here for that I I, I have a really good time with that. some of it is quite devastating to me like when they go out in Darth Vader singlets and board shorts with Paw Patrol slippers (laughs) and also they love um putting skate Guard. You know when you go skating and you have your elbow and knee guards? No. They wear them as part of an outfit. So they put them, they put them on their arms and just wear them, And so they just go out that in reminds, that. That reminds me of that trend. Do you remember when all the girls used to put like mesh gloves, like like uh, fishnet gloves? Do you remember when? Finger, yeah, fingerless, fingerless ones. Yeah, fingerless gloves. But they were also they like Supre sold them. They were these like fishnet fingerless gloves gloves in, and we, some of them were in neon colors yeah, yeah yeah I remember yeah this is like Avril Lavigne has yep. just tie with a singlet yeah. I went to big day out yeah. in a singlet and a tie but yeah so that was um the highlight of my week got rid of the shoppies Oof, hope I don't get them for a long time <laughs> well you and I just went to the preview screening in Sydney of an extraordinary film Shader Oof. the first feature film written and directed by Nura Niasari it is a movie it's not a documentary but it is very much based on her life and the life of her mother so the film follows this woman Shada and her six-year-old daughter as they are sort of 
trying to make a break from an abusive husband and the sort of sociocultural circumstance is that they are Iranian and the pressure from her, not just from her husband who has gotten the right to see her daughter once a week. Unsupervised. Unsupervised. And Shada is terrified that he's going to just put her on a plane and take her back um, to Iran. Where she would have no rights as a mother. Yep. And also what I thought was so well done and so devastatingly convincing was the pressure that Shada feels from her community to go back to this abusive husband. Including her mother. She's on the phone to her mother. And her mother is not a bad mother at all. Like she's a very, comes across as a very loving mother. Yep. But still cannot understand why her daughter is seeking a divorce, thinks it's ridiculous basically. Yep. And tries to convince her over the phone to go back. What I also thought was incredibly well done in this movie was the joy still to be found in life and the fun still to be had. The the women's shelter was so well done and so I don't think I've ever seen a women's shelter portrayed the way that it was, which was very warm, very homely and with some very traumatic moments and very sad, really sad moments. One particular scene where both you and I were sitting next to each other I think basically sobbing. We weren't even quietly crying. We were sobbing. But that isn't the everyday life. Like they have fun cooking together. They have fun dancing together. They joke around with each other. Shader even goes out to nightclubs. Mm. And so it isn't just this grim portrait of domestic violence. Of course there are some really grim and scary parts. But it's also about being a young woman in the world Mm. too and – how there was still fun in life. And it was really interesting. We saw at the screening at the Ritz and after there was a Q&A with the director, Noor, and her mother was there, which as soon as they said it was her mother, the cinema kind of erupted because she lived through that domestic violence and she did incredibly brave things for her and her So just daughter. to clarify, Noor Niasari, the writer-director, sort of like was the six-year-old child yeah. in the film. So Shada... The mother in the film is Noura Niasari's mother but in yeah, real based life. Based on her. And yeah. in the Q&A, she said that her favourite scenes were the nightclub scenes. I love that so because much. Because Shada goes out to nightclubs and, and it's it's so fun and also so menacing as well because she is there is a part of her that is very afraid when she's in there and it seems afraid of judgment from her community or like feeling a little bit of out of place and that she can't really let too loose and but also fear that her ex is going to find out and show up like she's very scared that he will somehow find out and show up but and but in the Q&A her mother said that those were her favorite scenes and she's like that's what it was like the 90s music the dancing it was so fun and I loved hearing that Mm. from her yep yeah I just want to say that like I think you and I said this when we walked out of the cinema to each other that neither of us these days very often choose to watch film or TV that we think is going to be really sad. For me, it was, it's just been quite a years long response to like all of the advocacy I did where I just, these days I'm often like, if I've got free time, I don't want to be reminded of violence against women. But what I want to be really clear about is that this film, Shada, is so full of love and so full of laughter. If you think you don't want to watch it because you don't want to watch another like sad film, do not let that be the thing that stops you because this film is beautiful. And also I think this film is going to the Oscars. Yeah, me too. So if you go to the cinema, it's coming out of the cinemas October 5 this week and if you go and watch it, you are going to be ahead of the pack for sure because I think we're going to be hearing a lot about it yep. next year. 100% agree. Yep, hard agree. You read a good book. I read a fantastic book, The Makioka Sisters by Tanizaki. Have you heard of this book before? <laughs> no. <laughs> I love it when you haven't heard of the book that I've read. You I feel read? like <laughs> I'm so impressed by how widely you read, I should say. <laughs> oh, thank you. So this book, I think I've said on the podcast before that I this year have – essentially stopped reading books where anyone receives a text message or an email. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I respect that. (laughs) And this is a Japanese classic set over the 30s and 40s 
published in the 40s and it takes place over about a decade and it follows the lives of four sisters. And it is so extraordinarily done. Like it is such a fun, beautiful, interesting, smart book. You learn so much about culture, specifically Japanese culture in Osaka and Kobe, which is very different to Tokyo culture, especially 70 years ago. There was quite a divide between the two. And cultural practices. And it's a little bit, this sounds lame to say, but I have to say because I really do feel like it is a good descriptor of the book. It really felt to me like Japanese Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) Like the relationship between the sisters is so well done and a lot of it focuses around trying to find a husband for the third sister. And That age-old dilemma. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And what I also loved about it is there are two things I love about it. You know, living in a time of crisis that we do at the moment, I think it can sometimes feel like we've been in perpetual crisis for the past few years, you know, pandemic, climate change, cost of living basically. And I like reading novels set in other times of crisis. Mm. And it, it, I find that there's, so there's something about it that I find comforting. Like human beings, it's a good reminder, human beings have been facing crisis for probably ever but, you know, certainly again and again over the past few hundred years and we come through, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and also the lives that you live, it, like ordinary life keeps happening. You fall in love, you fight with your sisters, you grieve your parents all under, you know, the shadow of historical events in the case of this World War II. It doesn't go up to Japan being invaded, but, you know, the war in Europe is raging in the background through the book. So I find that comforting. And there there was a line in it that I really liked where it's getting, it, the crises are intensifying broadly, but it's only referenced slightly. And where one of the male characters is, says, you know, we'll just have to live in this house until the crisis passes. And he's meaning the economic crisis and also the war. And it really spoke to me about just, yeah, you just have to wait it out. Like you you can wait the crisis out. We are going to get through it. Anyway, that is really not the point of the book. Or, the but point it's, of the it, book is just, getting this third sister married. Yeah, the point <laughs> of the book is getting the third sister married. And the other thing that really spoke to me in this book is the way he captured relations between siblings. I love seeing what can transcend culture mm. and time. And that is families relating to each other and how you relate to the people you love. And it was really blew my mind in some ways how he depicts siblings in the birth order and how they relate to each other because it's like, oh man. Elder sister stuff, younger sister stuff. Okay. (laughs) So exactly that. The youngest sister is seen by the older sisters as getting away with so much more than any of them would have been able to get away with. She's seen as frivolous. She's seen at at times as quite selfish. And they give her, they love her so much, but they also baby her and give her a bit of a hard time. Also, at the same time, she's going through the hardest personal stuff out of any of them. Like she has some really difficult things happen to her and the sisters just don't really recognize that at all. They're like, "Mm, you're still a bitch and you're still annoying (laughs) But when she really needs them, every sister is there. Mm. And then, and the older sister is seen as so bossy, even though I'm sure that she knows what is best for all of them and they're just not listening. <laughs> but she's seen Remind as- us where you fall in your family dynamic. I'm the eldest. I'm the eldest <laughs> of four, but one brother and two sisters. Anyway, you know, the older sister is seen as so bossy and she annoys the younger ones a bit and they're always rolling their eyes at like, oh, what's she going to think? And she's going to try and tell us what to do. And then they accidentally really hurt her feelings and are really surprised that she cries when they um, don't invite her to go to the theater with them. And it just, the way it's done is so, it's so well done. And so interesting to see those kind of dynamics playing out in Japan. A century ago. 80 years ago. And essentially you could write the exact same dynamics in a modern novel. Anyway, The Meiki Oka Sisters by Tanizaki. It's a big book. Um, It is a big book. Yeah, it's like 600 pages, but I loved it. And there's there's lots of, you know, different storylines that happen in it. So you could like, you know, the chapters are short. You can pick it up and put it down. But I absolutely loved getting lost in Asaka and Kobe and now my very good friends, the Makioka sisters' <laughs> lives. <laughs> well, I, in quite rare news for me, have discovered a music artist. <laughs> a music artist? 
I've gone, I've done that thing. It hasn't happened to me for, I'm going to say years where I'm now just listening to their new album on repeat, like have gone fully down the rabbit hole. Is it I, Olivia Rodriguez? No. Because <laughs> that's a banger. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how famous this person is. Chapel Roan. Have you? No. Okay, no. good. Because holy shit. All I kept thinking on the 20th listen through of her, the album that's just been released, it's called The Rise and Fall of a Midwest Princess. She's American, super queer, super camp, is that all of the things you say Taylor Swift does well, Chapel Roan does better. So Highly doubt it, but keep going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you remember when I texted you and asked you what you were doing on November the 24th? Oh, yes. I've bought us tickets because oh my God, amazing. I am going to convert you. Chapel Roan's songwriting is, you know, we were talking, you think that Taylor Swift is like the poet laureate of our generation and you drew the analogy to Bob Dylan because there's like a specificity in the lyricism, but still this sort of universality. Yes. Chapel Roan's Those lyrics. are like exactly my words. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> You, that's almost a direct quote of what I said to you like three weeks ago. <laughs> I'm ready to make this case. Chapel Roan's lyrics are so fucking hilariously specific. Like if I don't know anything about her personal life, but if they are just sort of manufactured, I would be shocked. There are like details in here and then also these like sort of great big themes. In particular for this album, it's, this sort of theme of realising that she's gay and leaving this little, like, country town. And there's a song called Pink Pony Club where it is the most, like, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, just my glorious, like, soaring anthemic of growing up and growing out of your hometown and having a fucking blast figuring out and being who you are. And what Chapel Roan has over Taylor Swift is that Chapel Roan is a fucking incredible singer. The things she does with her voice in like unusual and really expressive ways move me. And also she's funny, genuinely hilarious, really, really funny and good. I am, yeah, I, I just, Chapel Roan, Rise and Fall of a Midwest Princess, listen to it from start to finish. The final thing I'll say is this. You know what everybody loves about Dancing on My Own by Robin? How it's a dance track but has that kind of melancholy to yes. it. Bingo. Oh, my God. I love that song. If you love, love that Robin. song. I think, I think I'm going to love Chapel Road. Everything you've said has made me think that I'm going to love it. And you're saying she's very campy as well, which makes it sound like she's going to have a great stage show. Yes. I love that. So I love that you texted me this week and said, <laughs> What are you doing on November 24? And usually you would be a lot more specific with an invite. And I said, nothing. It's free. My only Saturday, November free, by the way. And you said, okay, keep it free and just put my name. And I was like, oh, mysterious. <laughs> yeah. And now you're revealing. Well, I can't wait. How did you find her? Well, this is a, I'll make the long story short. One of the only podcasts I listen to anymore, like every single week it comes out, is the Slate Culture Gabfest podcast oh, yeah. because they are just. They're so good, so brainiacs and so widely ravenous for all kinds of great cultural products. And they do this annual thing called Summer Strut where people send them in tracks, all kinds of songs for this is the American summer, so it's obviously our winter. And they listen to these like hundreds of hours of tracks that people recommend for songs that make you strut, like when the summer is coming. And they put together their list, their top list of their favourite tracks that thousands of listeners have sent through and one Chapel Roan song was on this playlist and it's called Feminine Non and Non. It's okay, I promised myself I wouldn't sing and I'm not going to. But it <laughs> that one song just sent me down this loop. And then her she had these like separate singles, like half a dozen singles, and it was frustrating to try and like get a sense of her work more broadly. And then like I think maybe last week or the week before Max she um, dropped the full album and announced the tour and I just, yep, head over heels. I'm going to be listening as soon as we finish recording this. Yep. Love Good. it. Good. The other thing that has completely consumed me this week, do you watch, have you watched any of Yellowstone? 
the series with? No. Yeah. So I had watched maybe half a dozen episodes of Yellowstone itself and then just kind of petered out for reasons I cannot recall. But we in our home started watching 1883, which was one of the prequel series for Yellowstone. And I wasn't sure whether or not it would be possible to make a feminist Western. And this is. And it somehow tells the story of these settlers and the fragile relations between these like very early American settlers and like some of them coming across from Europe and some of them crossing like west to like Oregon just from other parts of America with obviously the Native Americans and the different groups of Native Americans whose land they pass over and through. But the nexus of the story is this 18-year-old woman who's father is or she as well I guess is the precursor to the precursor to the precursor to the people we meet in Yellowstone now and it just it reminded me so much of what I loved about Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead in terms of really getting to the heart of some deep deep dichotomy between love and freedom it's very very good TV. Love it. What have you been watching it on? Well, it's on Paramount Plus. Okay. So yeah, we've become. I want to. I have a question for you about streaming services. I've decided to get really fucking brutal, and I've like unsubscribed from almost every streaming service, and then I will choose one where I know there's stuff that we want to watch, and I will go back on it for a month, and then like cancel it again because we got to the stage where we had six running, and it was like, yeah. Our mortgage has gone up. Not possible. Do you just have them all? Uh, I share logins with a few mates. Mm. So we, I share logins. I think I pay for a, a couple and share extra logins with some friends and they pay for a couple and share their logins yeah. with another family with young kids actually. Mainly it's us sharing our logins with each other. I have never in my life pirated because I'm way too hot for that and I've always had someone else pirate for me. <laughs> and I have a friend who. <laughs> <laughs> you pay for your own drinks at the bar but you won't pirate your own TV. <laughs> I, I, I'm not doing anything as unchic as figuring out the computer. <laughs> um, and my friend is really good at that stuff so if there's something that I can't find or it's on something that right. I don't, so there's not much I don't have access to. I text my friend and he sorts it out for me and then it shows up on my TV. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I deal with the with the streaming. But it does creep up. If I, if we paid for everything, it would creep up to like $80 a month for yeah. sure. So that's what we got to. And I was like, and went. Yeah, login sharing. Netflix yeah. has cracked down on it, but login sharing is is what we do. This week, I've seen a lot of people talking about self-care, which I do feel pops up in a cycle like once a year or so, don't you reckon? Yes. So people are sharing this Guardian article by Ellie Violet Bramley that just came out and it's called, Just Take a Bubble Bath, Why Faux Self-Care Won't Solve Our Problems. And I think the article itself does a really good job of giving specific examples of absurd self-care. For example, she writes... Take it from someone who once had a panic attack at a gong bath. <laughs> All the hashtag self-care in the world will never be enough if you don't address the underlying stuff. And then the article goes into really like genuine intersections of life experience like class, race, gender, about systemic issues that are burning us all out and how fucking absurd it is to put the onus for making people feel remotely okay back on them as individuals. It's not the first time I've seen this article, but I hard relate to them because, I mean, my personal background with this particular type of story is that when I was touring and advocating for quite heavy stuff, people would frequently ask me how I would like self-protect or like what my self-care was. And I just think we should like have a moratorium on anyone who's even remotely rich like middle class and up 
should not be allowed to talk about self-care. But that kind of self-care that people are asking you about, like when you are advocating for really, for women who have been in incredibly grim circumstances, that is basically the origin of genuine self-care, which is how do you look after yourself so that you can keep being an activist for your community and pushing political change and improving lives of others like that's the genesis of it what in the 80s is you do have to look after yourself at times when you are being an advocate and an activist so I don't think that that's too bad a question to ask you and you obviously do have to have some ways to look after yourself but then it kind of morphed into this wellness thing of like anytime you take a bubble bath or anyone no matter what your job is or your role in society is and then and it usually was for richer people it was a radical act to look after yourself and to have the bubble bath and to treat yourself and you know I love treating myself (laughs) i.e the shoppies Oh, but I don't need to make an excuse for it. Like you can just do things because they feel nice and feel good, but that is separate to the discourse around self-care and who gets to practice it and who should practice it and when do you practice it. I thought there was I thought the article was good, but I thought there was this really odd line in it that I found very jarring and just deeply disagreed with it, where someone was quoted as saying, Well, most people feel terrible most of the time and that's just a fact and I thought what (laughs) not in my world but Bridie you are the only millennial who doesn't have anxiety (laughs) you can't (laughs) but it's like I don't feel terrible most of the time but also we know (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a sick one a lot of the time But also when I think about my friends and family, I don't think it's generally true of my friends and family. And that's across all social circles, not just like, you know, creative people in Sydney, people I know everywhere. I wouldn't say that most of them feel terrible most of the time, but maybe just me and all my friends and family are really good at always having a sick one. Yeah. I don't want this to turn into like I'm 14 and this is the first time I've read Nietzsche, but... (laughs) I don't know. Uh, A lot of the human condition involves suffering. There's definitely suffering for sure. And, you know, there are times when I'm – we joke about me being the last millennial without anxiety and always having a sick one. But, you know, I work essentially full-time. I have two kids under five. You know, it's things are definitely hard for me at different times as they are for everyone. I feel like tired and burnt out and – over it and stressed out. And I don't think I've ever, you know, I got so stressed this year that I got a wisdom tooth infection and went to the dentist and the dentist said, so many women in their 30s are turning up with this at the moment because of how stressed that demographic is, which I thought was really interesting. But it's just that I don't feel like I feel like that most of the time though. Mm. I don't think it's like my base level. The thing I hate about a lot, about like the direction that sort of self-care trends took over the last decade is how often these days they seem for women in particular they seem to overlap with something to do with beautifying and cosmetics i think it's super oh my fucking well, cooked and well toxic. this is like wellness in general which is essentially diet culture rebranded yeah or just beauty culture rebranded i do do kooky things that would could fall into self-care though like last week i got cupping done <laughs> have you ever had cupping <laughs> I didn't realise how deranged it was. It's fucking So I didn't realise that cupping was actually bruising you. <laughs> what did you think I don't what know. happened? Did, I you, don't know. did you read anything about this practice before you did it? No, I'm incredibly suggestible. I'm a very <laughs> suggestible person. So I was in getting an incredibly intense massage and just at a random place in the suburbs and the chick massaging me said you should do cupping and like in my head I think that I do just have a vision of I've seen random pictures of those circles on women's backs yeah and I was like and I don't know what I ever thought those circles were like I I actually I just probably didn't think about it that much (laughs) the Bridie Jabor story (laughs) (laughs) didn't put that much thought into it I just did it just got pregnant just had kids was it upside down (laughs) um That's a reference to a tattoo I got accident that was upside down. Uh, and I didn't realise till the tattoo was done. That's for OG listeners of Cool Story. Anyway, I got the cupping done and it hurt. 
it really hurt the cups all over my back yeah. and I had to sit there with it for 10 minutes and then I had all the circles and I realized the circles were bruises. So I do love partaking in that kooky um, stuff that falls into self-care. Now that I mentioned, now I don't want to be, oh, God, are we going to get in trouble? The last time I looked, which was a very, very long time ago, there was no scientific evidence to support the, like, efficacy of cupping. Do you think I live my life by scientific evidence? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to know what my rising sign is? Do you want to know know why I can't get my hair cut when Venus is in retrograde? (gasps) What? Are you you shouldn't mess me? around with your appearance when Venus is in retrograde. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh, one day I will go full crook on this podcast. Oh my god! Well, it's one of the things you should know about me. Like I, I think I am intelligent and like, and I think you're extremely intelligent. That's some- why it's so funny oh, yeah, to me that you this- believe in absolutely fucking everything. ludicrous concepts. Wait till you hear my ghost stories. And, and, but I'm also a deeply superstitious, kooky person in other ways as well. Mm, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I really hate the way wellness culture has gone and it's like not particularly original to say it, but it's to the point now where I get resentful when anyone even asks me about it. Not of them, just like of how disconnected it has become from its like intended supposed premise. Absolutely. And it's why this article was, it's good to reflect on and think about it. And I did overall enjoy the article and the discussions that it sparked. The big story of the week, and I'm really, I'm really glad to talk to you about this because you're much more clued into the sort of journalism, like daily news grind of it is not just that the referendum is coming up fucking fast, but we're, we're going to talk about like the campaign around the referendum. Around the voice, yes, and what has happened during the campaign. So we're getting to the very pointy end of it. October 14 we'll be going to the polls to vote yes or no on whether there should be an Indigenous voice to parliament enshrined in the constitution. That is the simple question that yep. we have been asked to answer on October 14. The campaign around it has not been around that simple question most of the time. And it's been very interesting to watch a referendum campaign happen. Well, while we're adults, because the last referendum campaign, you and I were both in primary school. Yeah, I have no recollection of a referendum ever. The uh, the closest thing we have that I have in memory, obviously, is the marriage equality plebiscite. Yes. And so the last referendum was 1999 on whether we should become a republic. I vaguely recall it at the time I was in primary school. I've read a lot about it since and and Mm. how that campaign played out. So this is the first referendum campaign to happen in the internet age, essentially, Mm. which I think has played a huge part in how how it has played out. Last year in the polls, we had roughly 60%, roughly 60% of people, I think it was about 57% consistently, supported the idea of an Indigenous voice to parliament. That has now fallen to 45-ish percent across the polls. And recently there was a poll that had every state in Australia, because the territories don't get a say. Yep. Only the states do. Every state in Australia except for Tasmania looking set to vote no. And it's very, very difficult to do constitutional change. You need a majority of states to say yes and you need a majority of people in those states to say yes. So it's a hard ask from the beginning. And it looks like the no campaign is winning at this stage. I don't think you can call it. I still think anything can happen. I think that what we have learned over the past few years as well is that polling people has become incredibly difficult. But I still think that there's something interesting to be seen in the polls and you can see trends in the polls. And trends in the polls are certainly that the yes campaign has gone backwards while the no campaign has some momentum. A really interesting thing to pull out of the polls, though, that has also been fairly consistent is that something like 38% of respondents are essentially disengaged with it and saying they haven't been thinking about it or talking about it. And that is a huge number of people. Mm. So that's where we're at 
polls-wise, who knows what's going to happen on Saturday. I think that a few things to observe from the campaign have been the incredible amount of misinformation and disinformation, which would not have been as big a factor in previous referendum because so much of it is online and therefore so much of it is either A, hard to respond to or hard for the Australian Electoral Commission to crack down on because it's coming, some of it's coming from the official um, no campaign, but a lot of it is coming from different groups. I couldn't believe and I still cannot believe that that booklet about sort of like how to vote or like what's happening this referendum where one campaign got the left-hand side and the other campaign got the right-hand side of the booklet. I cannot believe that something that got sent out by the Australian Electoral Commission did not have to be fact-checked. That booklet was not fact-checked. That is, that makes me livid. And if they're not fact-checking that booklet, which I honestly don't think that booklet is going to play a big role in the campaign because it's essentially 2,000 words from each side. But if that's supposed booklet- to be able to trust if it's in purple. Exactly. Sorry, I know exactly. that sounds no, simple. True, true. But, like- but also it, it goes to show the difficult job that the AEC has because this booklet isn't even being fact-checked. How are they fact-checking what goes out on social media? I also think that this is – so there are some things that I think are analogous in terms of like campaigning and – trying to get an entire nation behind something. There are some things that are analogous with the marriage equality plebiscite and there are some things that are really different. Something I think is analogous is how damaging it will be to this country moving forwards if the no vote is successful. And something else I think is analogous is that we saw during the marriage equality plebiscite how harmful the rhetoric was to people in that those communities like to people who were gay to people right now who are indigenous like how just hearing the sort of hate and loathing given airtime is this this process is excruciating but something that's different is that there is like such a wide range for potential misinformation and disinformation with this referendum with like what the Uluru statement is, like what the voice would be, what it means for the future. Whereas with the marriage equality plebiscite, there wasn't much scope for the no vote to like whip up terror and fear of the unknown. Well, they did try. I do think that the yes side during the plebiscite was a lot more disciplined and they had at the start the yes side of the marriage equality plebiscite was very clear on what their messaging was going to be on like the three messages they were going to stay on track with. And the no side did try to go off track, particularly in relation to trans issues. That's During true, the plebiscite. Yeah. And the yes side shut it down very quickly. I think one of the things, and there are a lot of different factors that have happened in this campaign, but I think uh, one of the things that has happened in this campaign is that the yes side weren't as quick to shut down some of the disinformation that they should have. And I think... They weren't as clear in their messaging and there's a few reasons for that, but they weren't as clear in their messaging as what the yes side was during the plebiscite. One of the reasons they weren't as clear in their messaging is that there's actually a few different groups on the yes campaign side who talk to each other a bit but aren't necessarily working with each other and checking everything with each other each day. And so I think that that was an issue. I think that it's really difficult, some of the messaging that they had to get across because one of the messages from the No campaign that has been particularly ef- effective, and there's a lot on the No campaign that is wrong, mm. that contradicts itself. Yes. But there is also, a, there is a proper debate to have been had on the yes side and the no side as well. Like there was always a proper debate to be had, but a lot of the no side has veered into things that are incorrect or not to Well, what do you mean? Do. What What's an example of something to be debated? How effective? The, I think that it's fair to ask how the voice would work. And I think that the yes side did not at the beginning of the year do a very good job of explaining how the, how the voice would work. Right. I don't think that they were clear that this is an, a council of Indigenous people from various communities will be elected by the communities to give advice to parliament on issues that affect Indigenous people. Yeah. That was not clear at the beginning of the year. Where at the beginning of the year when the when the no side said, where is the detail, how would this work, the yes side response was, we'll work that out after. You'll find that out later. Actually, I yeah. do not think that is a good 
response. And of course, there was a debate to be had. And the other debate to be had is how effective will the voice be? I think that is a legitimate debate to be had in, you know, the yes v no camps. No, I disagree with that. Do you? Yeah. How so? Because I think what we have seen, what I keep coming back to is with the years and years and years in a row now of the Closing the Gap reports that what we're doing right now isn't working. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so that's a fair response to make, but it's fair. Yeah, of course that makes sense. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be effective, but I think that it is a legitimate discussion to have about how effective it would be. No, but, like, my point is that it's not when, like, if you accept the the statement that what is happening now is ineffective, then any new measure has, like, we have to try something else because we're not what's happening right now isn't working. Yeah, fair enough. But have that discussion. That's a fair discussion. And I think it's yeah. fair for some people to say, but if it's non-binding, if it's just a bit of a, advice, then and then the government can just ignore it, then why bother? <sighs> yeah. Which I don't agree with. Yeah. But I think that's a fair discussion to have. But what the no side has veered into is that it's divisive, that it's racially dividing the nation, which, which is, is just not true. Cooked. And I think it is wrong to say that the voice would be ineffective, but I think it is fair to have that debate when you're having constitutional change and the yes campaign could have been more prepared to argue that from the beginning of the I year. Ha- and I, I agree with you, actually. I had forgotten how Albanese even himself would say to people, like, the referendum isn't the time or place to talk about the detail. We'll figure, like, we'll talk about the details later. Yeah. And I remember but at the time being like, oh, you that leave makes people wide, nervous. Yeah you, yeah, you leave the field wide open. But it, the thing is, and also the Yes campaign was arguing something, something that is true but it's kind of hard to get your head around. This is a modest proposal and then the no side could say, then why bother? But it is a modest proposal. Yes, it is. But it is a modest proposal with the potential for truly transformative change. Mm. And transformative change, Brie, that is not going to affect me or you. Yeah. And and this is something that I think that we have to keep in mind, particularly as non-Indigenous people. The voice really is not going to affect the vast majority of Australians, but it could have a truly profound effect on our First Nations people. And it also, it came from so many different groups, like an incredible community consultation. The Uluru Dialogues was an incredible community consultation. And yes, not every Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander agreed with it or supported it or thinks it's it's the best way. Over 80% now. But a majority, it, it was an idea that was come up with by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Also, I just get really frustrated. I hear this sometimes when I go back to Queensland and chat with people. There is an expectation on First Nations Australians that they will somehow, they are like held to this standard of somehow having to reach a perfect consensus before they can like collectively advocate or fight for something that would better them. And no, no other group. It's not expected of anyone else. else. And it's like, I just hear this thing, this ugly thing sometimes where it's like, well, the last time people would say things like this was around every January 26th, when we talk about changing the date or abolishing Australia Day, people raise these ugly arguments of like, oh, well, they can't even agree amongst themselves what date to change it to, or if there even should be a date. And it's like, no other group are ever expected to reach a mythical perfect consensus before they can advocate for themselves. It's infuriating. And depressing. But it has also been one of the most effective, one of the most effective things that they've done is that their main spokespeople are very legitimate. It's Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price out there saying a lot of arguments that just I don't think non-Indigenous people could have made those arguments and been taken as seriously or been as convincing. And they are, of course, entitled to their views. Some of the points that they've raised as well have just been, well, ridiculous for want of a better word, but they also raise plenty legitimate points. But I do think that you couldn't have had non-Indigenous people in those positions in the no campaign. No. And it would have been as effective because it does give the impression that there is disagreement among the First Nations community, which there is, and as you say, they should – absolutely be allowed to have, but it is still true that the vast, vast, vast majority do support this. Something I would say, though, is that 
I hear a lot more in the media across the board every time one of the Indigenous campaigners for the No campaign speak than I do when someone like Marcia Langton speaks for the Yes campaign. It's interesting that you think that as an average consumer of the news. It's hard for me to make that judgment because I read every single outlet and listen all the time. So I feel like I'm hearing a lot what, you know, Marcia and Noel say. And so it's extremely interesting for me to hear some an intelligent, informed, but kind of average consumer of the news feels like they've heard more from Warren and Jacinta yep. than Marcia and Noel Pearson. Yep. And there's also, we, and we haven't even gone into the role that media has played in some of the disinformation as well. Well, we haven't talked about the fact that this is the huge thing that I'm frightened and about and stressed about is that I do not think that enough has been done to combat deliberate disinformation, especially on Facebook specifically and how generational the use of Facebook is. And how do you combat it? It's so difficult. Like it's it's a debate had in newsrooms across the country and I'm sure it's a debate had within campaigns as well. It's incredibly difficult to combat disinformation online without those platforms playing a role in it. Yep. There was a fantastic book I read a year or two ago called Facts and Other Lies by Ed Coper. Um, and I interviewed him for the when I did the events at the State Library of New South Wales. And it really opened my eyes to how extraordinarily valuable Twitter and Facebook in particular are for any campaign, like political, social movement, whatever it is, if what they want is to deliberately sow discord and disinformation. Because it is so easy to, on Twitter, for example, X, fucking whatever, to buy bots and use them in ways to amp up voices that otherwise don't have much support. And on Facebook, something that I have seen the No campaign do in the last few months is create pages that on their surface or on their face seem to be just kind of neutral or centrist pages, but which for every 10 stories that are shared, nine of them are negative coverage. And to create dozens of those pages, which then like and share and comment on each other's pages to just amplify, amplify, amplify. And it takes a comparatively small number of people with a decent, half decent strategy to do that, to have a really outsized effect on tens of thousands of Facebook users. And I think we've seen that since the Donald Trump election and Brexit overseas and we're seeing it play out and obviously we have a different democratic setup but we're seeing it play out in Australia and I still haven't seen anyone come up with the solution of how to combat this properly without the platforms playing a role in that and then you get into a debate about censorship. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about that too is that it was so depressing when the day after Brexit, the single most Googled thing in England was what is Brexit? Oh, it's also depressing to see how Brexit has played out and the negative impacts it's had over the past few years that the people who voted for it did not know or did not think were going to happen because they were essentially lied to. Yeah. And like what's going to happen in Australia if the no win the referendum and the next day the single most Googled thing in Australia is what is the voice. Do you think that's going to happen? Are you going to make a call? You're not going to make a call? So I would never make a call because in the Queensland state election after Campbell Newman had won an historic majority, reduced the Labor opposition to seven seats, I covered that election for the Brisbane Times, flying all over the state with the leaders. And then the next election, I was working for The Guardian in Sydney and I went up to Brisbane and covered it as well. Anastasia Palaszczuk, never going to win, potential, you know, like fill in opposition leader until they got someone elected to come along. And I remember sitting with Daniel Hurst on video for The Guardian talking about Campbell Newman and Anastasia Palaszczuk going to the polls the next day, who's going to win? And I said so confidently, well, it's mathematically impossible for Campbell Newman to lose such a huge majority. It's just not going to happen. He hasn't done it, played a very good campaign. Anastasia has been stronger than people expected, but it's just not possible. Labor cannot win. (laughs) To which Daniel Hurst 
one of, I think one of the best political reporters in the country and someone I've been friends with and watching for years, like he has an incredible mind, to which he responded, I would never make a call. You never know what anything can always happen. You never, anyone who says they know what's going to happen in a vote or an election is always just guessing I wouldn't make a call. I said, okay, this is all on video. Afterwards, I was making fun of him. Not going to make a call. They have to win 40 seats. What are you talking about? This is so funny. And Nick lo and behold. <laughs> Anastasia what, Palaszczuk. What happened the next day? Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. And she is now, if I'm not mistaken, longest serving? Second longest serving. Oh, no, she's coming up to being, she's coming up to overtaking Peter Beatty in yep. the next few months. As a longest as serving Sengus, premier. Sengus, second longest serving premier. Who was long, wasn't Joe longer than Peter? Ooh. Yeah, but that's. Yeah, well, anyway, yeah, you were proven so, wrong is so, your point. <laughs> and, but ever since then I have never made a prediction on an election or a vote. And so while I think that the yes campaign has certainly gone backwards in the past few months and the no campaign has had a very strong campaign, partly because of legitimate strategies and also because of a lot of disinformation, I still won't make a call about what Australians are going to say on October 14. Mm, fingers crossed. What have you got this week? I'm going on a beat. I'm on school holidays. I'm back on the school holiday cycle, which is so fun. It feels different to like every other annual leave I've had as an adult to be on school holidays with my son. And we're going away to a beach house. Cute. What are you doing? Well, I was supposed to see Black Showgirls the other week, if you recall, and it got postponed because of cast injury. So our tickets, we're, we're doing a matinee this coming week. Oh, I can't wait to hear how that goes. So that's, I should say, in case you weren't listening earlier, Black Showgirls is... Nikia Louie's play that's being put on again here in Sydney. Thank you so much for listening. This is Cool Story with Brie and Bridie where we talk about our stories, the best stories and the biggest story of the week. And our show is produced by Sam Devonport. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a rating and reviews. We read every single review, especially if they're nice. And you can also find us on Instagram at Cool Story Brie Bridie. If you aren't watching already, you can also find us every single episode on YouTube.